Welcome to the East Memorial Student Podcast, your source for the biblical teaching of East Memorial Student Ministries. I'm your host, Matthew Ronsky, pastor of Students and Discipleship at East Memorial Baptist Church in Prattville, Alabama. Well, it breaks my heart that I could not uh, play that second song with you guys, but uh, I did not have the chance to practice it. And uh, out of uh, humility, I'm not going to even try. So. <laughs> But, uh, but it was fun to play that first song with you guys. So thank you for, for letting me do that, Brother Jeremy. All right. Well, you may not realize this, but with the upcoming holidays, we only have like four more Wednesday services for the year. So we're not meeting the week of Thanksgiving. We won't meet two weeks in, in December. And I'm only going to be with you guys for three of those four. Chris and I are going to a wedding in California. Uh, So with only three Wednesdays left with you all, I have been trying to search for and think of a brief series that we could do in three weeks. And since we just finished a long topical series, I did want to lead us through a book of the Bible, through an expositional verse-by-verse study. Well, one book that we can definitely cover in three weeks is the short letter of 2 John. So as you see up on the screen, 2 John, and we're titling this series Protecting the Truth, and hopefully that will become clear why as we progress through this. Now, full disclosure, you know, I've of course read 2 John before. I've even translated the Greek of 2 John, but I've never studied 2 John in depth or taught through 2 John. So I'm going to be learning along with you guys as I'm studying and preaching to you all. So this is, this is something we'll be doing together, and I am really looking forward to what the Lord will teach us through this small little New Testament letter. Now before we dive into our study of 2 John, I do need to provide some important context and background that will set us up for this study. So some important context is we'll be first beginning with the earthly, the early earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. When he ministered for three years before his crucifixion in the early part of that ministry, Jesus established a pattern of ministry with his disciples that would later apply to the church at large, including you and I. And that pattern is, instead of fulfilling his ministry by himself, the ministry that his father had given him and that he came to earth to fulfill, instead of doing it by himself or doing it with the help of angels, and he certainly could have done both of those things. He could have done it all himself or he could have enlisted the help of angels to do it. But instead of doing that, Jesus decided to partner with his human disciples and send them out as his representative. So he decided to partner with us human beings, those who follow him, who believe in him, and essentially send us out as representatives. And to show you that, turn with me to Luke 10. Luke 10, and we're, I'm going to read to you verses 1 to 3. But this is where he establishes this pattern, and then we'll see it reapplied right before the church is founded as an institution. So Luke 10, and begin, be, me beginning to read in verse 1, 
It says, now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Now turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, a book that Luke also penned. And I'm going to start reading in verse 6 all the way to 11. So Acts chapter 1. And this, of course, is right after, well, not long after Jesus resurrected from the dead after three days in the tomb. Then he spent 40 days with his disciples on earth in his resurrected body. And then right here is right as he's about to ascend back into heaven. So chapter 1, verse 6 reads, So when they, that is the disciples, had come together, they were asking him, that is Jesus Christ, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now, a big point to take away from these two passages, especially this last one in Acts 1 here, is that there is coming a day that Jesus is going to return. He's going to return into earth on a cloud of glory as he ascended into heaven. And when he returns, he will establish a global earthly kingdom that he will rule over as king. And he will do that when he returns. But in the meantime, in this in-between time between when he ascended into heaven and when he returns, which we are in that time right now, in that meantime, Jesus is going, as he says, to send out his disciples as witnesses even to the remotest parts of the earth. And so we could say from this that the reason the disciples remain on earth, and not just these disciples who remained on earth, but even us, those of us who believe in Jesus, who have come to know Jesus in a saving faith as our Lord and Savior, the only reason, or you could say, I mean, really the chief reason that we remain on earth and that Jesus and God doesn't just take us up, God the Father, the reason they don't just take us up right away into heaven, which he could, you know, we could be like everybody could believe in Jesus and as soon as they believe and have faith, it's like, boom, they, they vanish right to heaven. That would be technically possible, but it doesn't happen. We believe, we place our faith in Jesus and yet we remain here in our sinful bodies, interacting with sinful people all over the world and the reason why that is the case is what is explained in Acts 1. He is sending us out 
as witnesses, as his representatives, to do what? To teach the world and other believers about Jesus Christ and about his truth. In other words, the reason we still, as believers, exist on this planet Earth and don't go immediately to heaven is so that we would make other unbelievers into believers and to partner with Jesus Christ, working with Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish that ministry. That is why we remain on earth. Now, the challenge for us believers is that our mission on earth does not go unopposed. It doesn't go unresisted. And what I mean by that, if you remember in Luke 10, the passage we just read, the first passage we just read, he said that he was sending out his disciples as sheep among wolves. As sheep among wolves. And the reality is that we live in a world for the time being that is currently under the power and influence of Satan. And that doesn't mean that God, the Father, and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are not more powerful than Satan. It doesn't mean that they don't control everything that happens in this world. What it does mean, though, is that Satan still has influence over the unbelievers of this world and over the unbelieving governments and institutions of this world. Satan is still at work in this world. And so Satan and all of those who are under his influence, which includes his demons and unbelievers who are under his influence, all of those people, persons, are opposed to the plan of God, which means they are opposed to us as God's witnesses and representatives. We could even say that for us who believe in Christ, if we are faithful to Christ and if we are faithful to the mission that Christ has given us, we will face enemy opposition at some level. It's guaranteed. Some people may face more severe opposition. Some people may even have to give their life for Christ. But all of us, if we remain in the faith long enough and if we are faithful, we will face this spiritual battlefield that is led by Satan and those under him. And just to give you a biblical example of this, in John 15, John 15, verses 18 to 20, here, Jesus outlines the, the reality that believers are going to face. And he says in verse 8, starting in verse 18 of John 15, he says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my word, they will keep yours also. In other words, how people respond to Jesus is how they're going to respond to you as his representative. If they submit to Jesus and submit to his word, then they will have a good relationship with you. But if they reject Jesus and if they hate Jesus, they're going to hate you as well. The slave is not greater than his master. Now, when it comes to the types of enemy opposition that Christians will face, 
There are really two types, two types, and one of them is going to be the focus of our study in 2 John, but the first type of opposition that we as Christ's representatives will face is external opposition. And what I mean by external opposition, it's, it's opposition that comes from outside the church and outside of Christian communities. So that could include uh, governing authorities that are anti-Christian and hate God. That could include employers like bosses and managers that maybe are anti-Christian and would, would persecute you or make your life difficult. It could include for you, that, all of you in school, unbelieving classmates that find out you're a Christian and give you a hard time or make fun of you or whatever, whatever it is that teenagers do. It could also be unbelieving family members, unbelieving family members that because of your faith are going to ridicule you or oppose you in some way. So that's what I mean by external opposition. Now, the second type of opposition that Christians will face is internal opposition, internal opposition. And what I mean by this is this is opposition that comes from within the church and within Christian communities. And what we learn from scripture is that this type of internal opposition, this type of opposition is carried out by what we can call satanic infiltrators. Satanic infiltrators who sneak into churches, sneak into Christian communities in order to cause division, to cause confusion, to cause doubt, and ultimately to lead people away from Christ and from the truth of Christ. To give you an example of this, in Acts chapter 20, and you can turn there if you want, Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 30, at this point in Acts, this is uh, the, apostle, the Apostle Paul that we're going we're gonna to hear speak, uh, read, read speaking here. And, uh, and at this point, he is, he is going to be talking to the elders of the pastors uh, in the city of Ephesus. And he's going to give them some very important guidance and instruction. This is going to be the last time that he sees them. So this is, this is his final farewell advice that he's giving these pastors. So in Acts 20, verse 28, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So as we see in this passage, this final warning to the pastors of the city of Ephesus, Paul is saying, I know that when I leave and depart from you, satanic infiltrators are going to come in, wolves in sheep's clothing, and cause problems. And by the phrase wolves in sheep's clothing, what Paul means there is they're gonna come under the banner of Christianity. These people are going to claim Christianity. They're going to claim to be followers of Christ and they're going to claim to be bringing the truth of God and to be teaching the truth of God. But the reality is that those infiltrators, although they claim Christianity, 
They're really agents of Satan. That is what Paul is referring to. Now, why it is important that you know these things is because the letter of 2 John, which is going to be the focus of our study, this letter is designed primarily to address the issue of these satanic infiltrators. That's the purpose of this letter. And specifically, as we will see, the letter of 2 John provides both a warning about these infiltrators and also a way to protect the truth of God from these these satanic agents. We could even say that without 2 John, why 2 John is so important and why it's included in the New Testament is without this letter, believers could fall into a trap that would support and promote the satanic ministry of these false teachers. And we're going to see that as we study this letter. So let's turn to 2 John. And tonight we are going to cover the first three verses. And this is the greeting of this letter. So 2 John, the first three verses is our target for tonight. And these verses, as I mentioned, they cover the greeting. And it's a standard greeting that is typical of most of the New Testament letters written by either Paul or Peter. And, uh, and if you remember from when we studied the letter to Philemon or Philemon or Philemon or whatever, however you guys pronounce that. If you were a part of that study, you know what I'm referring to. But uh, during that study, you might remember that we talked about the greetings of letters. And I, I sought to demonstrate to you all that in these greetings, although you know, we read these and we could think that, oh yeah, it's just somebody saying hi to somebody and telling them who they are and okay, let's just skip over this and get to the main point, right? Well, as I attempted to teach you all, in these letters, all of the details matter. The way in which the author refers to himself, who he addresses and what he says about them, all of these details that we're gonna study tonight are important for helping us understand the contents of the letter and the focus of the letter. In other words, if you don't understand the greeting, it's very easy to go astray as you seek to interpret and study letters like these. So looking at this greeting, we're going to start in verse 1. And the first thing we're going to look at is right in the beginning, the elder. The elder. Just says the elder, and we're going to pause here. The elder, this is the author of the letter. So typically in these letters, you have the author, he'll state his name or his title, and then you'll have the addressee or the recipient of the letter that comes after. So this elder is the author of the letter. Now, although the author does not name himself, he just calls himself the elder, we know that the author was the Apostle John, which is why the letter is called Second John. And we know this because when you compare Second John and Third John, but, but all those letters to First John, there are a ton of connections and similarities between the letters. And in the early church, it was very well established that the Apostle John was the author of First John. That was widely accepted and known. And so based on the similarities, we can conclude that the Apostle John is also the, the author 
of this letter. And the fact that he doesn't refer to himself by his name, that's not unusual for John. You may not know this, but in the Gospel of John, which John also wrote, he never once calls himself by his own name. He only refers to himself often as the beloved disciple in the Gospel of John. So this is very typical for the Apostle John to to not refer to himself by name. But he does call himself the elder. And the important thing about this title that he applies to himself, the title that he chooses to use, is that it is pointing to his pastoral authority. It's pointing to his pastoral authority. And I say that because in the New Testament, the term elder is used to refer to pastor. So the same term, elder, pastor, overseer. Maybe you've heard Brother Glenn talk about that in in the recent weeks, but they're the same title, same title. So by referring to himself as the elder, he is pointing to his pastoral authority over the people that he is going to be addressing in this letter. Now let's turn now to the recipients of this letter. And what we see in the next part of this verse is it reads, to the chosen lady and her children. To the chosen lady and her children. Now, we know that John is the author, but as far as who this is, who the chosen lady is, it's not quite as clear. It's not quite as clear. There's some debate about this. One view, uh, a, a common view, is to interpret the lady, the chosen lady, as an actual person who, who John knows and who likely hosts a church in her home. And then the children would then be the members of that church who meet in her, in her home. So that's one common view. Another view is to see the chosen lady as like a code name for a local church. So instead of saying the church of so-and-so, the, the view is that John is just referring to this local church as the chosen lady, and the children are that church's members. So that's another common view. Now, before I give you my view, and I do have a view, there are two things that you need to know that are not debated, that are, that are very clear. So two things you need to know before I give you my view. So one, at the time Second John was written... Christians did not meet in large church buildings that could host hundreds or thousands of people. They did not meet uh, in that way. In the first century of the church, during the time of the apostles, during the time that this letter was written, Christians in any given city, they would gather basically like in small groups at people's homes. You know, maybe anywhere from 10 to 30 or 40 people if it was a larger home. You know, it really depended on the size of the home. But bottom line is that Christians, the early Christians, they had church, they had church services in private homes. They would typically meet at night, not actually in the morning, but they would meet at night. Their services would consist of a fellowship meal where they would often practice the Lord's Supper during that time. Then they would sing songs, worship songs, songs to God, And then they would read scripture, and if someone was there that was qualified to teach scripture, then they would listen to a sermon or a teaching like you all are right now. But this this type of service, which is very similar to the structure of church services that, that are done today, the only big difference is that it was done in private homes 
and in a little bit more of a comfortable and informal environment. Now, as a result of the smaller and more decentralized nature of the early church, not every house church had the luxury of a resident pastor. Like here in East Morrow, right, we have, there's, there's four or five ministers on, on the staff. Most house churches, they, you, were, you were fortunate if you had a qualified pastor that was at your house church every week. Some house churches, they didn't have one. And so what you had back then is that there were traveling pastors and traveling missionaries who would rotate between different house churches in towns. They rotate. If you think of it, like if you can imagine here at East Moral, imagine, you know, there's all sorts of maybe persecution. We lose our building. You know, we were forced to decentralize. We're forced to scatter and meet in homes. Well, it's not likely that every week, every home would have one of us pastors here from East Memorial. So in that hypothetical scenario where all of East Memorial is scattered all over the town of Prattville and Millbrook and Deetsville, and, they're all, and we're all meeting in, in homes in groups of, of 10 to 20, maybe 30, what would probably have to happen is that Brother Glenn, Brother Jeremy, all, all of us would have to kind of rotate. And we would say, okay, I'm going to go to this house, you go to that house, bring a sermon, bring a bring a, a teaching, and you know, maybe you'd have a main house that you would typically go to, you'd pick the largest one or something like that. But that's how it was back in the early, early church. And this might all seem like, you know, like detail you don't need to know. Trust me, you will as we go through 2 John because the issue of these traveling pastors is, is part of the main problem that 2 John is addressing. But that's the first thing you need to know The second thing that you need to know is that since churches gathered in private homes at that time, every house church had a host who owned the home. Every single house church. So they may not have had a pastor, but they had a host. And the host was not necessarily the pastor. In fact, more often than not, they would have not been the pastor because the host would have been busy managing hospitality, making sure everybody had what they needed, all the arrangements were, were put into, into order, kind of like our deacons, our, our modern-day deacons do today. That, that would be more of the function of the, the host, the owner of the home. And then you would have an actual pastor either there or visiting who would prepare the teaching and lead the actual worship service. So every house church had a host, and due to the demands of hosting a church gathering, which remember included a fellowship meal and all those, all those arrangements, the hosts were often wealthy individuals who owned a larger than average home. Often wealthy individuals. And, uh, and obviously you'd want to, if you had a wealthy person you would, and they were godly, you would want to pick their home because you want to be able to fit as many people comfortably as you can. Now, one thing that is interesting about this is we know from Scripture that there were wealthy and single women who had the honor and privilege of hosting a church in their home. And one of the best examples of this is the woman Lydia from Acts chapter 16, who Paul she requests, if, if you find me worthy, let, you know, come to my house, stay at my house. And it's implied that the church in her town began meeting 
in Lydia's home. And of course, the apostles would actually do the teaching and the preaching and the leading. So with this information in mind, and there are other reasons that we don't have time to cover, I would argue that the lady here in 2 John, this chosen lady, is an actual person who hosted a church in her home. And then the children would be the believers who not only met in her home, but who also benefited from her hospitality and care. In a way, she kind of had a motherly role over this church that met in her home. So calling the members children would be very appropriate. Now the significance of this view of this chosen lady being an actual person, an actual woman who hosts the church in her home, the significance of this is that we have a personal letter, 2 John, that is not addressed to a pastor or elder like you have in the letters to Timothy and Titus. Timothy and Titus, they were pastors, they were elders. Here in 2 John, you have a letter that is addressed to a non-pastor, a chosen lady, and then all of the members in her home. And what this indicates is that this chosen lady and all of her children, all of the believers who meet in her home, this indicates that they are people who are on the front line of this battle with satanic church infiltrators. In other words, it's not just a battle for the elders and pastors to fight. Paul was addressing the pastors And it is important that the pastors fight this battle. In fact, they have to take leadership in this battle. But here in 2 John, the indication is that this battle is for every church member. From the lowest to the highest, this battle is for everyone. John is signaling by addressing this lady and her children instead of a pastor. John is signaling that this letter is going to focus on a spiritual battlefield that involves every member of a local church equally. Just another way of saying the same thing. And what this means, thinking of it in another way, that when it comes to this battle against these satanic infiltrators, everybody is a frontline soldier who needs to know how to fight this battle. And that includes you. That includes you all. Now, what is this battlefield? What is this battle, the specific battle that 2 John is going to be addressing? It is the battlefield of hospitality. Hospitality. And as we're going to see in the next several weeks, for church members, in order for them to win this battle against the satanic infiltrators, they have to refuse to show hospitality to any false Christian who promotes satanic lies and deception. That's the battle they have to fight. They have to refuse hospitality. And we're going to see that in the coming weeks, that by refusing to show hospitality to such infiltrators, satanic agents, they will help protect the truth of God from the attacks of Satan. But turning back to 2 John now, we're going to continue in the second part of verse 1. And this is where John is going to add some detail 
about the chosen lady and her children. So in the second part, he refers to them as those whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. In other words, John and all those who know the truth love the lady and her children. What we also see, though, from this is that in this letter, truth is a central theme. And you're going to see this as we, as we continue in the next two verses. Truth is going to stand out like a sore thumb. So let's continue in verse 2. And it says, For the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. So it's just repeating, truth, 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 and this greeting. Truth is central to this, to this letter. Even in verse 2, we see that John, he says, for the sake of truth, meaning this is the whole reason he's writing this letter is for the sake of truth, specifically for the sake of the protection of truth, the preservation of truth. Now, when it comes to this truth, there are two things to point out. So two things to point out about this truth that is central to the letter of Second John. And the first thing is that in John's gospel, who was writ- which was written by the same John that is writing this letter, In John's gospel, Jesus identified both himself and God's word as truth. So what is truth? Truth is Jesus, and it is the word of Jesus, which is not only the word of Jesus recorded in the gospels, but also the word of Jesus that came through his apostles in all of the New Testament letters, including the letter that we are studying right now. So truth is Jesus and God's word, which reveals Jesus. Therefore, when John refers to the truth here in 2 John, he is referring to the very person and teaching of Jesus Christ. So in other words, we as believers, as church members, it is our duty to protect the person of Jesus Christ and the teaching of Jesus Christ. Now, the second thing to understand about truth and the truth here in 2 John is that in verse 3, which we just read, John essentially says that all the blessings of God, all the blessings of God, his grace, his mercy, his peace, all of those blessings will be with us in the realm of truth in love. He'll be with us in the realm of truth. And we will talk more about love next week, but regarding truth specifically, which we're talking about right now, what you need to know, the important thing that you need to know is that in order to receive God's blessings, in order to be a recipient of those blessings, you have to abide and exist in the realm of truth. If you're outside of truth, you can't receive God's blessings. You have to be in truth 
in order to do that. So if you fall outside of truth, you fall outside the grace of God and his blessings. It also means this, this, this fact about being in the realm of truth, receiving the blessings of God in truth, it also means that if you don't fight on the side of truth, if you don't seek to defend truth as much as you possibly can, then essentially you are serving Satan in all of the evil that he represents. And that may sound harsh, but that is what scripture teaches. Scripture is clear that there is no middle ground in this spiritual battlefield. There's no, there's no being neutral. You either on the, you're, you're either on the side of God and his truth, or you are on the side of Satan and his evil and his lies. There is no middle ground. Here's another thing to think about. Not only is there no middle ground, there's no neutrality in this battle, but if you are in the church and all of you here are participating in the life of the church, you're regularly attending church, and if you claim to be a follower of Christ and you're gonna carry that banner and that identity, then you have to know that you are entering the front line of this battle. Whether you like it or not, whether you realize it or not, if you come to church and if you identify with Christ, you are going to be in this battle. Because this is where the battle is being waged primarily. This is, the, this is the center of spiritual warfare, the life of the church, the ministry of the church. So as we come to our conclusion then, with all these things in mind, with the importance of truth and our relationship to that truth, the reality is, is that if we are not already aware of that and we are not already preparing ourselves for that battle, we need to be aware of it and we need to prepare ourselves. And I know this may be or may seem not as relevant to you all right now. And, and the reason being because you all are relatively young. You're young, and so you haven't had a lot of the experience that would necessarily show you this battle and how, how it takes place. Also, there's the reality that you live in Alabama. Now, that's not to say that there are not unbelievers in Alabama or that there are not people that are doing very wicked things within Alabama. And those of you in the school system, you know that there are some wicked things that go on. And so I'm not saying that you're not aware of evil or, or wickedness, but here is the problem with being in a state like Alabama. Here in Alabama, it is still largely culturally acceptable to claim Christianity, right? You often hear that everybody is a Christian in Alabama. In fact, I, in another study, I actually saw statistics on this. Like in, in Alabama, the amount of people who claim to be an evangelical Christian is something like 50%, 50%. And to show, give you perspective on that, in the state of Massachusetts, the number is like 8%. So it's a very, Massachusetts, states like that, of course, you know, um, the Pacific Northwest, there's some regions in the country where it is very secular, it's not popular to be a Christian, and Historical churches are shutting down left and right. But here in Alabama, it's still popular. It's still acceptable to claim 
Christianity. And that means that it is easy to fall into the belief and the assumption that if somebody says they're a Christian, you just assume, yeah, yeah, they're a Christian. Of course they're a Christian. They say they're a Christian. They go to church. Why wouldn't they be? Well, the reality is that this is not the case. There are satanic infiltrators that are always seeking to secretly enter churches and deceive, cause division, cause confusion, cause doubt, not only in local churches, but even in broader, in the broader sense of like conferences and books and very public ministries. So this battle is real. And just to, just to be fair, okay, I'm not preaching down to you guys. I hope it doesn't come across that way because I was the same way. Even as a, as a 22-year-old new Christian, I had the assumption, I remember looking for a Bible college to, when I wanted to study, study the Bible and go to college to do that. I remember believing that every Christian university was equally Christian. I just assumed that. And by the grace of God, I believe I picked the right one, but I didn't realize the theological and spiritual battles that are taking place within the church and among Christians until really started studying scripture in depth, started spending time in the church and really preparing to be a pastor. So I'm not, I'm not preaching down to you all, but I am giving you insight through scripture and through this letter, insight that I needed myself. And that is that you're not, being in the church doesn't mean you're safe. Somebody claiming to be a Christian doesn't mean they're actually a Christian. There are deceivers that we need to be on guard from and to be cautious of. So in the coming weeks, as we continue in this study of 2 John, I trust that if you're not already aware of the spiritual battle, that you will be more aware of this spiritual battle. And we will talk about some theological battles that not only existed at this time, but even in the church today. So you will be more aware of it. Also, I trust that through this letter, you will learn a crucial way in which you can fight this battle on the side of truth. So I'm looking forward to studying this letter with you all. And... Uh, but we're just going to have to wait till next week to continue. So let us pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Uh, Lord God, we are so thankful for your word that you have preserved it for us even to this day, Lord, and that we're able to study it in depth with all the resources that you, that you provide for that study, Lord. I pray that in the coming weeks that you would bless this study in the letter of 2 John, that you would show us the truth that you intend through this letter, Lord and that you would help grow us as Christians and really, Lord, as spiritual warriors who are fighting on your behalf. I pray for all the students and the adults here that you would bless them uh, just in everyday life, provide for their needs, protect them, Lord, and ultimately to continue to grow them into the image and likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the East Memorial Student Podcast. For more information and updates about East Memorial Student Ministries, please visit our website at eastmemorial.org. You can also follow us on our Instagram page titled EMBC Student.